it became a lot about values and about how people look at things and how emo changed the conversation. You're listening to It's All Dead, a podcast about the music we love and why we love it. I'm Kyle Hawk. Welcome to It's All Dead. I'm Kyle Hawk, editor-in-chief at itsalldead.com. Thank you for joining us on the podcast here on a uh, Monday night is when we're recording this, uh, just a few days after the release of Taylor Swift's new album, Lover. And uh, I've really listened to nothing but that since. And apparently a lot of others uh, have been having the same experience. It's had the uh, best opening day of any album this year. Um, if you haven't headed over to our site, the uh, amazing, incredible Kyle Schultz did the review. Uh, we had a thumb war to see who would review the album he won. Uh, but I, I think it's his best review um, that he's written this year. So if you had a, haven't had a chance to check it out, take a look. Uh, there's a discussion to be had on whether it is Taylor's best album. And we may be doing a podcast to to uh, finally get to the bottom of that as well. But tonight, um, we are headed in a different direction. Uh, we're talking about books, um, a, a specific book that is also about music, which I'm really excited to do. Uh, I'm joined by Taylor Markarian, the author of From the Basement, A History of Emo Music and How It Changed Society. Uh, Taylor attended Emerson College, where she graduated with a bachelor's degree in writing, literature, and publishing, and a minor in music appreciation. She's written for publications that you may have heard of, Alternative Press, Krang, Revolver, many others, and uh, also served as an intern at Epitaph Records. Uh, I randomly, the other morning, pulled up Twitter. Uh, Chris Carabo was shouting out this book that he had contributed an interview to, and sure enough, was Taylor reached out. She said she would love to chat. And here she is. Taylor, thank you for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I am really excited. I've, I've spent some time uh, kind of doing some back history to learn a little bit more about you and this book. And I, I'm really excited to kind of get into it. And we're, we're going to talk about the book itself, because I want to kind of understand how it came about and the different people you spoke with and, and some of the stories that people can expect. But before we do that, um, I feel like things like this, specifically when it comes to music, they kind of go back. So I, I want to go back a little bit and have you tell us a little bit about your background, like where you came from and how music kind of played a role for you early on in your life. Sure. Well, first I'd venture to say it's a very different story than Taylor Swift. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. <laughs> um, but I'm from New Jersey, Northern New Jersey, Bergen County. Um, so I grew up right outside New York City. So, you know, I spent my time half in New York, half in New Jersey, pretty much. Um, and, you know, everyone goes through tough times when they're a teen. But um, I went through a particularly tough time because I had always suffered from things like depression and anxiety and mental health issues. And, um, you know, it even got to a point where I was suicidal and I was having suicidal thoughts and I've written for Reader's Digest about that recently because it's Suicide Awareness Month. And um, when you're in such a dark place and you don't have anyone, it gets even darker. And I finally felt like I'd found someone when I started listening to these emo bands and screamo bands. And, um, you know, my first 
foray into that was taking back Sunday's first record, Tell All Your Friends, mm. which today is still my favorite record of all time. Um, and I think that's also my favorite record because it was my first attachment, not just because it's a great record, yeah. which it is. Um, but, you know, there's something about listening to these kinds of bands and these really emotional, um, brash, aggressive, but still melodic songs. There's something about listening to those in the middle of the night when you're, you know, feeling all alone and resonating with what they have to say. Yeah, definitely. That's a, uh, that's a cool story. And obviously like being from New Jersey, then you're kind of like right in the middle of a, an area that has kind of brought about so many great bands in particular with the, the emo scene. So I imagine I, that was, it was kind of for you, perhaps one of those things where you discover one and then it's just an avalanche of all kinds of different music that is beginning to impact your life in that way. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, I discovered it because my best friend growing up, her brother was in a band. So it was it was right around that crucial time in the in the early 2000s when emo was really blowing up. And, um, you know, he was in a band. So he was showing me all these songs to listen to. And um, I cover this in the intro in the book. But um their cousin was actually Matt Rabano, who played bass for Taking mm -hmm. Back Sunday for a while. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there was that kind of familial link and that um, that link between me and the place I grew up in. And just like you said, it was an avalanche of once you listen to one band, you start to know them all. And um, it was really, I think, the hotbed of emo and screamo music. And I think that it wouldn't have been the same at all without New Jersey and New York. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we could spend hours here just talking about all the different bands that made an impact on that scene and, and kind of shaped the scene as a whole. Um, I, I'm interested. I, I want to talk we, on this podcast uh, in our website in general, it's all dead. Uh, we talk a lot about mental health and uh, honestly, a lot of what we're about kind of stems from that of how music um, can play a role in somebody's life in that way. I mean, I know for me personally, uh, you know, mu music ha has been there for me um, it, through a lot of struggles in that vein that are very real. Um, now, certainly there's all kinds of other <laughs> parts that need to be a part of that equation when, when dealing with mental health struggles, but music is certainly something that that plays a role. And so was this something for you where you felt it was just like an immediate connection and a sense where you felt like somebody kind of understood where you were at and having that um, was meaningful in that way of just knowing that you weren't alone? Yeah, it really did feel like that. And I think that's why it became so popular was because a lot of other people my age or, you know, in the same generation were feeling similarly. And um, it hadn't really been something that people talked about in the open. You know, mental health was, or mental illness even, was not something that people talked about um, freely. So to have these bands starting to open up about things like that and, you know, coming out and saying that these things are real and these things are valid things to feel um, 
it was it was really helpful and the songs were really moving yeah and so i i want to talk a little about about the i guess the term emo itself because the emo music scene is certainly there's a connection there for the people that love that music and are part of that community and then discussions about mental health. But I think there's sort of, or at least how I sensed it, at least at a time, I think at the the height of it was that there was this outside sort of mainstream looking in on it that didn't really capture the depth of maybe what was really going on. So tell me from your perspective, when you say emo music and the book is about emo music, what does that mean to you? Well, there's a lot of time spent in this book going back and forth between the different musicians that I interviewed, trying to decide what this word means. Um, and nobody knows <laughs> <laughs> is kind of where we arrived. Um, you know, some people still see it as an insult. Others um, have gone from seeing it as an insult to kind of embracing the term. And others just kind of are in ambivalent towards it and just kind of accept that that's what it is. That's what it's called. Um, me, I'm in the camp that it used to be insulting. Like people would, you know, mm -hmm. be like, Oh wow, that's so emo. Like, you know, with that tone on it. And, um, but at the same time as it was insulting, I also liked it because I associated that term with the bands that I liked. So right. it was this weird complex dynamic where it was, it was kind of hurtful and dismissive at the same time that it was, I mean, accurate. Yeah. It's, it, it's a term that has a lot of baggage and it's really interesting. This, this book is really coming along at the perfect time because I feel like if we go back even five or six years ago, uh, you know, members of a band like taking back Sunday or even Chris Caraba might not be as predisposed to label themselves as emo, but it seems like a few years ago, the term almost kind of got reclaimed in a, in a positive way amongst bands. And I, I remember specifically uh, the, the taste of chaos tour got revived a couple years ago and take him Sunday and dashboard were on that. I think the early November and Seosin as well. And I remember reading interviews where it was like, Hey, like this is, this is something that's a part of our history. It's a part of who we are. And I, it, it almost gave the sense that like people were kind of back opening to, I guess, discussing what emo meant again. Is that a sense that you got in, in some of the conversations that you had? Yeah. Um, I feel like people, like I said, have just kind of accepted it. And um, it's, it's kind of accepted because it's a historical term at this point. Um, not that it was so long ago, but now it's just the word that people use to refer to that place in time and that kind of sound. And it's an agreed upon term that everybody understands. Um, yeah. So um, I think that's why bands are, you know, coming out and saying and claiming the term emo when they probably didn't want to before. Sure. Um, and bands like, the used, for example, like I saw them recently um, play PNC Bank uh, Arts Center in New Jersey in Holmdale, and they were playing all the classic hits. And I also saw them in Atlantic City for the last Warp Tour. And same set, they were playing all of the songs from their first couple records that people wanted to hear, and they knew it. They have yeah. they have new records out. They have songs since then. Um, 
but they know what their fans want to hear. And it was, it was still just as meaningful for them to play those songs. Yeah, that's awesome. I want to talk, I want to get into the book here, but before we can do that, I feel like I need to know a little bit of how, so we, we've heard the story of how this music kind of impacted you personally. How did it begin to impact you professionally where you kind of pursued this career of being able to write for different outlets, the Epitaph Records internship, and now writing this book? I mean, how did that all come about? Well, when I was in high school and I was first listening to this music, I wanted to make music. I was in a, in a band and, um, doing vocal duties. And, uh, that's something that I, I really wanted to pursue for the rest of my life. But when I got to college, um, you know, that particular band had broken up and I was trying to find new musicians to work with and it just wasn't clicking. So I decided that I wanted to do something else that would still put me in contact with the music that I love so much. And, um, I'd always been a good writer and that's what I went to school for. So I figured why not combine the two? And, uh, I just, I started writing for my college's music magazine. It was uh, five cents sound at Emerson college. And, um, I just started locally interviewing bands in Boston. And then, you know, I started my own blog and you just kind of have to really fake it till you make it. You, yeah. you, you start writing with an authoritative voice as if someone should listen to you and then someone actually starts listening to you. Yeah, that's, uh, that is a very good, <laughs> very good description of that. So now here we are with this book that is coming out in October, right? Yes, it's, um, it's on pre-order on Amazon and Barnes and Noble right now, but it officially comes out October 15th. So at what point were you like, I'm writing this book. I mean, was there a point of inspiration or is this something that was kind of building for a while? Tell me about the the genesis of this. Yeah, it was really strange because it was something that I thought about writing a couple years ago. I was like, why has nobody really written about this? I should probably do that. And then I kind of put it on the back burner for a while. But one day I opened my email and I got an email from someone at Mango Publishing, who's my current publisher. And they had basically stalked me a little bit on the internet and liked my writing for alternative press and, um, you know, all those other outlets. And they said that they were looking for someone to write a book about emo and indie music and asked if I would be open to that. And it was just so strange because it kind of lined up really perfectly. So, it just kicked me into gear and, and pushed me to start doing a project that I had wanted to do in the first place. That uh, That's a pretty awesome story. I mean, typically, <laughs> it's like you've got the book idea, you write the book, you're shopping it around trying to get somebody to publish it. So kind of having somebody come to you first, that's, uh, that's kind of the writer's dream. So c- congratulations on that. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it was a big compliment. And um, I it was good luck, I guess. And that's something weird for me because I never get lucky, but (laughs) this time it worked. Well, tell me about, I guess, the first steps. So they come to you, we want you to write this book, you say, okay. I mean, how did you start kind of mapping out what this book would look like? And how did you start deciding on who you were going to talk to? So Mango Publishing has a very writer-friendly contract. Um, It's very open, very 50-50. They kind of just leave me to my own artistic devices and um, then they take a look when it's all done and they start 
editing and helping me with marketing and things like that, but it's, it's very much open-ended. So I had a lot of freedom to do what I wanted. And, um, I just started thinking about, okay, who are the bands that I need to talk to? And I made a super long list and, you know, it wasn't just my opinion. I consorted with my other friends who grew up in that genre too. And, um, I started reaching out to all the contacts that I already knew from my other journalistic assignments and it just really snowballed and uh, Dana Giraldi was a huge part in helping set up all these interviews um, she's the founder of Big Picture Media which is a great press mm -hmm. company in New York I have a lot of respect yep. for those girls um, and you know just other managers and PR people along the way um, that set them up and sometimes even just the bands directly um, that I had already known. So it, yeah. you know, sometimes it was hard and sometimes I didn't get the interviews that I really wanted, but I did get a lot of interviews that are really important. And I really hope that people see that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's uh, the, the names attached to this are um, yeah, not nothing. Like I mentioned <laughs> right from the start of Chris Caraba, uh, you know, members of Taking Back Sunday. As you're doing these interviews, what kind of stories or information were you hoping to glean? Um, I was kind of basing my expectations off of other oral histories of music that I've read. So, um, you know, one that stands out is Please Kill Me, uh, which is mm. the punk oral history. Yeah. And there were a lot of anecdotes and a lot of things about, um, like this place and this time and remember when this guy did this but what ended up happening was in these conversations it ended up being kind of more um theoretical and philosophical than that um yeah. because of the nature of the music it's very reflective and um very personal so it became a lot about values and about how people look at things and how emo changed the conversation. Yeah. So as you're doing these interviews, was there, uh, is there an interview that sticks out to you that surprised you the most or where you kind of got some things that you weren't expecting? Mm, one thing that I got that I really wasn't expecting was, um, this band mineral. They're a very emo band. And I know, mm -hmm. um, they're going to hate me for saying it because the band member that I interviewed for it from Mineral uh, hates the term, does not claim it at all. He <laughs> does not know why people think that they're an emo band when really, if you listen to them, they're the most emo fucking band you've ever heard. Right. So there was a lot of rejection of that word, you know, like we were talking about. So, um, that was surprising for me. It was always surprising to hear someone rejecting the the genre when they were the epitome of the genre. Um, yeah. I, you know, I'm telling you, it's so funny. Uh, those situations never cease to amaze me. There, there's still a band 
uh, it, this has been several years ago that uh, took a very big exception to me labeling them as pop punk. Um, <laughs> we're very angry about it, took to social media to to talk about it. And it's always one of those very interesting things. And, you know, in a way I get it because it's like this, the music you create, the art you create, like that is that is yours and who knows better what that is than you. Although sometimes things are what they are, you know, it's just kind of a interesting, interesting dynamic. Um, so was there anybody, you know, with, with all the people that came in, was there anybody that you were like nervous to interview or did you feel comfortable going into all of these conversations? I was really, really nervous to interview Ian Mackay mm. <laughs> from Minor Threat and mm -hmm. Teen Idols, Fugazi Embrace, etc. He is also the head of Discord Records all those punk bands. So he was a big deal because he's a yeah. major figure in the punk and hardcore community, especially in DC. Um, so I was n nervous to talk to him um, part of, partially because of that, but also because I didn't know what he was going to think of me asking about emo music, but everybody that I talked to, every musician, every journalist that I talked to, um, they point to him as, quote unquote, the granddaddy of emo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I figured I had to start from the, the beginning and um, I was nervous about it, but it, it ended up being a really funny interview because he had no idea um, why he even mattered to this book. <laughs> so uh, it was basically me spending 20 minutes of the interview trying to explain to him and <laughs> convince him that this was worth doing but it ended up being a really uh valuable interview yeah well it's interesting because one of the things i was curious about and again this all goes back to the ambiguity of the term emo you know uh, there's people that claim that emo is like sunny day real estate and you, you've talked about mineral and, and minor threat but other people if you bring up emo they're going to say paramore and fallout boy and really I, i've come to think of it almost as like a spectrum where like everybody's on it but it's rare that somebody kind of consumes the entirety of it so for, for this book do you feel like people wherever they're coming in terms of what they classify as emo and what they enjoy about emo can find something in this story Absolutely. Um, I spend a lot of time discussing and detailing the history of each of the waves of emo. You know, people talk about the first, the second, the third, the fourth wave. Um, yeah. And I could, I could go on and on about what that actually means. But basically, the OG emo bands that uh, the first few fans grew up with are gonna find themselves in it. The kids who only knew about My Chemical Romance or um, Brand New or whatever, they're gonna, they're gonna find themselves in it. And um, I think it's, it's got a lot in it for everybody. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and then I want to touch on the, you know, the book, uh, as I've seen, focuses on the relationship between music and mental health. And obviously, you've given us your background, but talk a little bit more about why that was important to work into this conversation with this book? Well, it's important because it's the primary subject matter of what all these bands ever sang about. Yeah. Um, they're talking about their own, their own problems. And in a lot of cases, they're not just typical teenage problems, even though some of them are, some of them are deeper than that, you know? Um, 
And there's a difference between being sad and whiny and being clinically depressed. And um, a lot of people never knew how to approach that. And a lot of people never knew how to approach me (laughs) when Mm -hmm. um, I was listening to that music and going through that part of my life. So um, I think emo did much more than people think for the mental health conversation. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's, uh, that's cool. And I'm excited to um, see that explored in the book. Um, I want to talk a little bit about just music in general with you. Um, so in, in your opinion, what was the height of the emo scene? And you and you obviously, I'm, this could be taken a number of ways, the height of it artistically, the height of it in terms of popularity. But for, for you, when you think of the, the emo scene, what comes to mind as being like the, the big moment? Well, for me personally, I was in the middle of it towards, um, you know, 2006, 2007, 2008, which is when uh, My Chem and all those bands were were getting really huge. And um, that's the same time where a lot of the um, quote-unquote real emo bands pointed to as the downfall of emo. So, (laughs) um, you know, for me, there is no real or fake emo. I think that happens in different stages and it takes on different qualities. Um, but in terms of popularity, the height of it was definitely those years in the mid two thousands when it was on MTV, when that still existed for music. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but you know, after that, it kind of, it kind of faded out. Well, one of the things that I always find interesting is that, you know, you'll meet somebody and start talking about music. And I know for me in particular, this happened even just a couple of weeks ago where somebody, I'll find that connection with somebody that knows about the bands that I listen to. Somebody knows who the Devil Wears Prada is or, or something like that. But for them, it was like a, a phase that they went through or there was a couple of years where I was into that music, but I haven't thought about it in years. And then you've got other people that are like lifers in it. Uh, what What about this scene still appeals to you now? And what bands out there do you feel like are sort of carrying the torch onward today? Well, there are a couple of things in there. First of all, I absolutely hate it when people say, oh, yeah, in my emo phase. Yeah. <laughs> because yep. I, I get what they're trying to say, but at the same time, it's really like they're dismissing an entire body of yep. work, an entire genre, an entire generation. And it's like it feels personal to me like when they dismiss that it feels like they're dismissing the things that I went through, you know? Yeah. And I know they don't mean it that way, but that's how it comes off. Um, for sure. So yeah, for me, it was definitely not a phase for a lot of people. It's definitely not, um, you know, a lot of my friends, I'm turning 26 and a lot of my friends are, you know, a few years older than that. And, uh, everybody in their mid twenties and mid thirties still clings to these bands. And um, a lot of them are still in bands like that, you know, just playing yeah. locally. Um, but as as far as bands that are well-known that still carry the torch, I think Sense Has Failed does a really good job of that. Hmm. Um, who's, they're my favorite band in the world. Um, you know, they've had a lot of amazing records. Taking Back Sunday may have had my most favorite record, but Sense Has Failed is, to me, you know, the top But that's just a personal side note. Um, They're also from New Jersey. So there's there's that for me. Um, (laughs) But they've been going ceaselessly 
since they began. And with each record, they've evolved. You know, they put out a couple of hardcore records. Um, mm -hmm. But the the most recent one that they've done, and I know they're recording a new one, um, were very much in that emo and even pop punk kind of vein. So right. there's still a place for it. Yeah, absolutely. Their their last album was really excellent. Um, out, outside of the scene, what other types of music interest you? What else do you listen to? Um, mainly just hardcore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, contemporary hardcore, like counterparts. Uh, they just released a new song today. So did Straight From The Path. Um, Knocked Loose just came out with a killer killer record it's called a different shade of blue mm. um and one thing that all these bands have in common is they're produced by will putney from uh, graphic nature audio whose studio is okay. also in new jersey and i don't think that's a coincidence um <laughs> but he he makes such great records every record is a smash um and there's a lot of good stuff coming this year Awesome. So, and you mentioned, uh, tell all your friends the first time from take you back Sunday. That's your favorite album of all time. Um, I mean, and so taking back Sunday, this is another band that's had just a, a massive, incredible career, just fascinating. I, I love talking about this band just cause they've gone through so many different iterations and evolutions. Is, is that a band that you've continued to follow all the way through? And are there other records of theirs? Cause I, I love talking about people's favorite taking back Sunday record, because there's in my mind, there's a lot of different ones to choose from. And I love hearing arguments for different albums. For example, my, uh, uh, my personal favorite of theirs is where you want to be yet. I know for a lot of taking back Sunday fans, that's an album that's awful because it was the follow up to the first album and didn't, wasn't as good as the first one. So what, tell me a little bit more about your relationship with taking back Sunday and their music. Well, I think that's bullshit. First of all, because, uh, where you want to be is an amazing record. So, yeah. um, for me, I was really all about taking back Sunday, uh, up through louder. Now, after that, I think their sound really significantly changed. It became more just rock instead of, you know, that edginess, that sure. punk element to it. Um, and that's just, you know, it became something that wasn't my cup of tea anymore. And um, they had a lot of member changes that also um, affected the sound. And mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of stories there. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's not my place to say, oh, because they're not, quote unquote, emo anymore. That means they're not good. Um, I'm sure plenty of people still love what they're all about. But for me, it's always going to be the early days. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, tell me what comes next for you. The book comes out in October. You, is there any more type of promotional work that you're doing around the book? And, and where can people go to, to learn more? Oh, yeah, I'm going to be hustling. <laughs> um, I, I, I can't really say what's in store. Um, not because I'm keeping it a mystery, but because I don't know yet. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to explore as many avenues as possible. And to me, um, I obviously wanted to have success, but what does that really mean? You know, um, yeah, dollar signs are great, but I think at the end of the day, I have to look at it and everybody has to look at their art as how it affects people and just having one person buy it and pick it up and read it and 
you know, liking it is successful to me. And I've already had so many people that I don't know just coming to me on social media or in person and saying, thank you for writing this book. And I'm like, you haven't even read it yet. <laughs> like, you could absolutely hate this book. <laughs> but um, it, it feels really great to have someone say thank you. Um, because yeah. that's the same thing that I say to the bands that I interviewed for this book. So um, yeah. I'm just going to keep going where it takes me. You know, I've realized that I don't really have much control over that except working really hard. Very cool. Well, I am very excited to read this book. Uh, the book is called From the Basement, A History of Emo Music and How It Changed Society. Uh, I uh, Obviously, you can pre-order the book on Amazon, and then we'll have a pre-order link on our website. It's all dead.com if you want to come uh, there after you listen to this podcast and uh, learn a little bit more. But Taylor, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me today. Really excited about the book and excited about what you're doing. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Just the fact that you reached out is awesome. Absolutely. Uh, that'll do it for uh, this episode. If you like what you heard and are a first-time listener, well, please come join us. Again, the website is itsalldead.com. You can subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. And if you feel so inclined, uh, come tell us how we're doing. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, we hope that you'll do that if you like this show. Um, that's going to do it for this episode of It's All Dead. I'm Kyle Honk, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the It's All Dead podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Then visit us at itsalldead.com for the latest music news, reviews, and much more. 